You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, Saturday night, despite the fact that the so-called experts said it couldn't be done, the Co-Main Event Podcast pulled off its second ever UFC fight party during the broadcast for UFC 253. We had to do this one on our own because our guy Ryan up there in Canada, Zoom professional who helped us out on the first one, he was unavailable. So you and I had to handle the uh, the particulars, the technological details, uh, and we pulled it off somehow. It seemed like yeah. a good time was had by all. Uh, you know, we watched uh, UFC 253 all the way through to the uh, Israel Adesanya Apollo Costa fight in the main event. The best part to me of, of the fight parties is not only like getting to watch the fights and talk about the fights and stuff like that, but also getting to hear from some of the beloved patrons of the co-main event podcast. We had numerous people check in with us over the course of what about three hours during the fight, the fight party got to hear about our guy, Andrew's uh, son with a heartwarming story where his, his son tried to win some money to, uh, to buy a video game for his brother, you know, just like uplifting stuff, stuff that, that really, uh, you know, maybe you're feeling a little down about the state of the world, about how things are going. You come you come check in at the UFC uh, CME Patreon fight party, and all of a sudden you leave you leave with a whole new lease on life, a whole new uh, respect for humanity. Yeah, really kind of feels like we put it in the face of those so-called experts who keep saying that it can't be done, even though we keep doing it. Yeah, no, I know. That's, uh, that's the doubters and the haters, man. We're just, we're just going to keep you know, doing what we do. The doubters, I understand. The haters, though, I just don't know what their deal is, Chad. Yeah, neither do I, man. Neither do I. Uh, we got plenty of good, fun stuff happening all the time over on the uh, the Patreon page. So if anybody that hasn't joined, I would invite them to go ahead and take a look at that over at patreon.com slash co-main event. This week, in fact, we're starting a, a new era of the movie club, the famous film director retrospective. Uh, where we watch four movies from a prominent film director. This month, we're doing David Fincher. So uh, first movie up will be Seven. That comes out every Wednesday, available to the uh, the beloved patrons of the Co-Main Event Podcast. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this out there in the open right now before we even get to talking about Seven. I don't care for what they're doing with the spelling of the name. Yeah. The, with the, the movie the, title. Instead of the V, they use the numeral Seven. Yeah, it just doesn't work. Like how like my brain rebels at the thought of what I'm supposed to do with that. I get that it was a different time. It was especially like 1995, the, my man. You got yeah. Brad Pitt wearing the wide ties. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. it was just Morgan you know, Freeman in his high-waisted pants. Still still mostly uh with his natural hair color, hadn't even started going gray too much up there, Morgan Freeman. So uh I mean, you're speaking about an era, man. I am. I am. And I understand that we like to do some wacky shit with movie titles. Uh, I like the movie as a whole. I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to discuss about it. But I'm going to say right now, not a fan of what we're doing with the title. Yeah, I could probably take it or leave that part. I'm just saying it just it, it speaks to 1995, I think. 
In any case, that comes out on Wednesday. It's going to drop the same day as the Patreon live chat that we do every week over on Wednesday. And then, of course, every Friday, we got the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, that comes out. Uh, people seem to like that a lot. So if you've got interest in hearing more from us during the week, you can go over to patreon.com slash co-main event. Check out all the cool stuff that's happening at the Patreon page. If you, uh, if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to go out and grab a copy of The Blaze, my latest novel. It's a mystery and thriller. A lot of the little co-maniacs have been telling me that they read it, that they liked it. So if you haven't got it, run out, grab a copy of The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your, re- your reading. Remember, if you have read it and you do like it, you did enjoy it, please go out and leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. We got music again this week, Ben, uh, from our guy Kyle Kelly Yoner who happens to be a drummer of tremendous talent. He's got a solo project out now, longtime listener to the show. It's an EP of instrumental tracks, mostly drums and synth. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, if you like what you hear from him on the show, you can find the rest of the EP at his website, kyleky.com, or follow him at Drums over on Instagram. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Israel Adesanya made it look easy against Paulo Costa on Saturday. And now 20-0 and 0 in MMA, the question becomes, how good can this dude be? And in round number two, all hail Yanni Blackjacks. Look, we have no idea how long this crazy train can stay on the tracks, but sign us up for a f- couple of first-class tickets to Blahovichville. That rolls off the tongue. And in round number three, heavy sigh, Diego Sanchez. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's go ahead and do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from JG, who writes, uh, what's your hype level for the four-part docuseries Fight Island Declassified on ESPN Plus? They were advertising this on the broadcast. Uh, Will the UFC be competent enough to weave a narrative that omits Dana White's inability to understand basic scientific principles and the fact that the UAE paid for the entire operation? Will they talk about the fact that there are only false positive COVID tests, but never any false negatives? I have so many questions. Uh, So, yeah, they were hitting this thing pretty hard, Ben, during the UFC 253 broadcast four part documentary series about the origins a fight island four parts is a lot of parts for something like this yeah you're going that's you're practically in uh ken burns yeah uh civil war territory there you add yeah. a three a couple more parts to that and all of a sudden you got ken burns's civil war on your hand hands discussing uh how the the geniuses over at the ufc turned lemons into lemonade my friend when they went ahead and uh and set up fight island fight yeah, I mean, if they could get Tiger King done, if they could tell that story and not that many more episodes than this, I don't know that we need four on Fight Island. But I also wonder, we've talked before about the nature of the financing of Fight Island and how for the government of Abu Dhabi, this seems like a a cost that is supposed to be offset in the tourism boost we're going to get or the PR boost that we're going to get. I wonder if something like this was part of the deal that, okay, you're going to pay for our thing, all the testing, the catering, all the hotel rooms, the tremendous expense of creating this quarantine bubble over there in Yaz Island. 
in return, we'll hype you up and we'll do a documentary series, a four part documentary series where there are plenty of opportunities to show the cool roller coasters at Ferrari world. And you know, we're going to see some people coming out of the mouth of the Cobra on the water slide chat. Yeah, that's a I given. Mean, if I tune in and I don't see that, I'll riot. I need to see someone coming out the mouth of a Cobra on an inner tube going down that water slide. That's the whole reason I would be there watching. Uh, over the weekend, your guy Dana White not taking kindly to uh, some pre-broadcast criticism, some light pre-broadcast criticism, I will say, from from Dave Doyle over there at uh, MMA Junkie uh, saying that uh, I believe he tweeted something like, oh, thank God we had to have another like prominent documentary featuring dana white since we didn't we didn't get yeah. enough of that, of that the we, first we don't 13, get enough from, times that the yeah, ufc did it when he went looking for a fight and when he established a contender series we were like this but it's still not enough we need more so uh he dana white responded i believe by calling everybody in the media a bunch of scumbags guys who have never done or, or built anything in their lives uh now they're going to criticize him here for his his four-part uh, infomercial for Fight Island. So I don't know, man. I want to check it out. I want to see what's happening on the uh, on the docu series. You know, uh, when the UFC produces a bit of film, a piece of film, it definitely comes from a certain point of view. I guess we'll say it's definitely uh, given given one one side of the story, one one company's view of uh, whatever they happen to be talking about. Not afraid. To revise the history a little bit is the UFC. I said in my best Mike Goldberg imitation. So expect that going in. Yeah, I can't. When does this thing drop? When is this thing going to be on ESPN Plus? We have no idea. It, I don't know. It seems like a, a candidate for the for for the movie club or for something over on the Patreon page. Does it though? It seems like does a couple it? of guys could watch their way through uh, the Fight Island Declassified and 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 talk our way through it. I was really hoping you would watch it and you'd just tell me about the highlights. Just give you some notes, executive yeah, summary. I really look forward to a no more than 45 second summary at the end of all four episodes. Next question this week comes to us from John Joseph, lead singer of New York hardcore band Cro-Mags Seville. Okay. That's what sure. it says. That's how it was sent to us. Okay. Uh, he writes, Ludovic Klein just landed the most savage combo of 2020. Discourse. Yeah. You see this one? This was on the prelims I, over there. I did. I did see this one on the prelims. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty. That's some pretty violence that we're able to pull off out there. Also, okay, this one was a 150-pound catchweight fight, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, do you think he could – He could he move up to the 165? That's what I, I mean, want to know. Yeah. If, if, uh, you, the 165 if we're doing 150. All purveyors of violence in and around – that weight class. So if Ludovid Klein wants to wants to check us out over at the one six five, I, I got no problem with the guy. I'd like to see him bring his his head kick and punch combos up there any any day of the week for sure. Yeah, and like uh, Klein was, if I'm not mistaken, he was the the late replacement here, right? Um, I believe that's right because he missed weight. He was the one who missed the weight. So yeah, well, I mean, and this is a question I realize is kind of off the path a little bit, but somebody was asking me a question this week in the mailbag about because uh, Israel Adesanya making the case about how the penalties need to be stronger for people yeah, missing this, weight. This was the fight, right? Klein versus Young that uh, seems like it had Israel Adesanya fired up in the wake of the uh, like seconds after his victory over yeah. Paulo Costa. He's over there on the side of the cage talking to Dana White about how they need to make the penalties for missing weight 
stiffer because of essentially because of this fight, because Shane Young is a city kickboxing guy down there, a teammate of Israel Adesanya's. And so he was, he was fired up about that, wanted to talk to Dana White about it. And I think like in the immediate aftermath of, of your win over Paulo Costa and the main event of this fight, like uh, we're probably going to say some superlatives about Israel Adesanya on the show today. And I would just add that to the list. Like guy gets this huge win, uh, you know, uh, successfully defends the title, nets a $50,000 bonus, advances himself to, to 20 and 0, takes out a guy who had had a lot to say prior to the bell and Paulo Costa, and he's thinking about his teammates. He runs over there to talk to Dana White immediately to uh, to talk, to air a grievance on the part of like a lower profile teammate who has less political stroke in the company as Israel Adesanya. So like that just to me is another accolade in favor of the middleweight champion. True, but I disagree whenever this comes up, when people talk as if the way to address this is the penalties need to be stiffer. Sure. Because I don't think that it's an issue that people are insufficiently motivated to make weight because the penalties are already, especially if you're not making that much. If you're an entry-level fighter in the UFC, you're not making a whole lot of money and you definitely can't afford for them to take any of that money away, especially because not just the the money itself that you get fined as a portion of your purse that they give to your opponent, but then it makes you ineligible to receive one of the performance of the night bonuses, which are worth 50 grand. And that's what everybody's hoping for. And this is the the kind of a fight where the guy might've felt like, okay, this maybe puts me in the running for a performance bonus, except for the weightness. So I think there are enough things out there motivating people be either positively or negatively to make sure they make weight, but especially in this sport and especially now in the pandemic version of MMA, you you have more people taking fights on short notice. You want those people to still take those fights. You need them to take those fights. Otherwise, you know, the opponent doesn't get the chance to get paid either if you can't find anybody willing to step up and, and take the fight. And I think he took this on, what, like a couple weeks notice maybe? So you see a lot of those kinds of situations. And I don't know, if we put so much on the – or like make the penalty so stringent for missing weight – it doesn't seem to me like you'll completely eliminate people missing weight, but what you will do is maybe talk them into even scarier risks when it comes to weight cuts that aren't going well or extreme yeah. weight cuts where you're trying to drop a whole lot of weight really fast. Because we've seen those situations where you get to a point and your body just says it's not going to do it anymore. And if those guys feel like there's no point in even having the fight, if I don't make the weight because I'm, I'll basically make no money. Uh, and so I absolutely have to do it, that might motivate them just a little more to put themselves even more in harm's way. And I, I just don't feel like that gets us where we want to go when it feels like it introduces even more risks. Yeah. I, like, I'm not going to disagree with you. I definitely don't think that uh, fighters need to be carrying any more of the burden, financial or otherwise, here in the sport of mixed martial arts. They're pretty much uh, the driver, the engine that makes this whole thing run, and in many cases are coming out on the short end of the financial stake to begin with. So I don't necessarily know that we need to make the penalties stiffer for anything uh, up to and including missing weight. One thing that I am interested in though, and if I were a, uh, if I were still an enterprising MMA reporter, I would want to know exactly what Israel Adesanya was talking about in the post fight of this, of this event, when he talked about how some of these guys are gangsters and they're making money outside the cage and they don't, they don't care about losing their 30%, uh, for missing weight. That's, that's, that's a potentially heavy claim in and of itself that, that uh, might need some explanation there. Exactly. What, also, what he meant by some of these guys being gangsters. 
if I was a gangster making such great money outside the UFC, what do I need to show up and fight in the UFC for? I got this great sideline gig as a gangster. It's a great question. See, that's that's something that uh, a question that could be put to uh, to the middleweight champion. Is it exactly possible he, he was just there. saying stuff, Chad? He could have been hashtag just saying stuff, Ben. I don't know. Next question this week comes to us from Carlos Chamorro, who I believe is a soccer player. Uh, do you think all of this talk of Leon Edwards having no name value, no one wanting to fight him, uh, that he is dangerous, a dangerous fight with no upside, etc., has already generated name value for him? If yes, will he still be able to play spoiler in his next fight or will he have lost favor in the eye of the MMA gods? Please discourse. Now, see, this is actually a decent Good. idea. Good to hear right? from Nicaraguan uh, journalist Carlos oh. Fernando Tomorrow Barrios. Okay, nice, nice. Uh, this is if 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 the powers that be or Leon Edwards himself like are looking for a promotional opportunity, the guy nobody wants to fight ain't bad. You could do yeah. a lot worse. You could do a lot worse than being the guy nobody wants to fight. And it does seem like people who didn't care at all about Leon Edwards before this narrative settled in that he's the guy who deserves a big fight and possibly a shot at the title and yet can't get either. Now that has become enough of a talking point that a lot of people seem to care about him. A lot of people who weren't going to mention Leon Edwards before, now that it's gone on long enough and that we can see that he's kind of gotten some bad breaks and it keeps getting ignored whenever we're trying to match make somewhere in the top of the welterweight division. I'll say this. There are better things better kind of gimmicks and personas you could work. But being the guy nobody wants to fight and the guy who fans keep saying, why don't you fight this guy? What's next for this guy? When when are you finally going to give him something that he can work with? Uh, it's not the absolute worst you could do. It's better than what he had going on before, perhaps, where he was just the guy on the wrong end of the three-piece in a soda. Yeah. Uh, Vicente Luque, Brian Barberina, Donald Cerrone, Gunnar Nelson, and Rafael Dos Anjos all on the list of dudes that Leon Edwards has beat. At this point, though, he hasn't fought since July of 2019, so more than a year. Obviously, he was booked at one point to face Tyron Woodley uh, back in March, but that that fight got canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Edwards had to withdraw. I don't think he could get in from London I think right. was was the problem there, and so like not only does he have a tough time even finding high profile people who want to fight him, but now it's been you know more than a year since we've seen Leon Edwards. You're going to have to get the guy a fight at some point, and all matchmaking uh, decisions, all all signs point to the UFC just kind of uh, cranking right along here, getting fights for Jorge Masvidal, for Colby Covington, uh, for Nate Diaz, all this stuff happening, and, and once again. You don't hear a lot of chatter about Leon Edwards. It's like, we're going to have to get this guy a fight at some point. Somebody's going to have to fight him, and it ain't going to be me. Really? Are you sure? We can get you down to 170, Chad. We can make it happen. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. Just going to just blow right by that, huh? He writes, the tweets, the fucking tweets. Why does the UFC insist on showing every tweet that mentions them during the pay-per-view? It's so goddamn annoying. I could give a shit if some Instagram influencer thinks that round was sick. It adds nothing while actively detracting from my enjoyment because like the main event on Saturday, they showed tweets for the first 40 seconds of round two. The fuck is happening? Why is this a thing now? I actively avoid social media. Now I have to have it shoved in my face for what? Just cuz? 
reasons. Does this make anyone feel anything? Is this coming off as a, a cloyingly desperate to anyone else? I yes. Mean, it's a little bit cloyingly desperate. It's okay. not as cloyingly desperate as we've seen social media tweets employed in, in, in other companies' broadcasts, but it's still, it still pretty bad. Oh, here's what I wonder about it, though, because I, I am also annoyed by it. Maybe it doesn't actively detract from my enjoyment quite as much, but I, I don't think it, that it adds anything. And especially we talked about this during the live party where I kept trying to get you to tweet things that seem like the kind of things that the UFC chooses to go up on the broadcast. And they almost never add anything. It's just this fight is awesome. These guys are going at it. What a fight. It's just that over and over again, especially if the person is even marginally famous. And that seems to me like a clear attempt on the UFC's part to show you, look at important people are watching this. And this is not just a thing for all you nerds inside the MMA bubble. Goddamn Paris Hilton is watching. You know, Major League Baseball players are watching. People actually care about this, and, and it's a big deal to, worldwide. But the problem with that is, if I'm already watching, you, you got me. I right. I have to be watching in order to see the tweets show up that you hope tell me that people are watching. But I'm already in the tent, man. You got me. You sold me the damn ticket. Now get out of the way and let me enjoy the show. I, I don't see what it adds to the audience that is already going to be there and they must be. Otherwise they wouldn't see the tweets. Yeah. I, I, I'm generally against anything that's going to cover up any more of my screen. And, uh, when those tweets slide up there on the left-hand side in the big ass gray box, it is annoying. I have to say it is annoying. Although sometimes I, I get a, a hearty chuckle. Sometimes I'm able to gain a hearty chuckle by what they choose to put on the, uh, on the screen. So I will, I will take unintentional comedy where I can get it. But I agree. Well, We're probably better off without the tweets. The every fucking once in a tweets, while, as Eric Murphy says. Every once in a while, you'll see one from a journalist or somebody who is uh, in, involved in betting odds or watches betting odds really closely about how the line is moving. And you go, there might be interesting information. There might be something that enhances what I know about what's going on and therefore enhances my enjoyment of the broadcast. Maybe. Yeah. But most of the time by like a five to one ratio, it seems it's basically people just saying, I am enjoying this thing. Are you also enjoying it? We are enjoying it together. And I get that that's in a lot of ways, the appeal of social media on a fight night. But if I want that, I know where it is. I know how to find the social medias on my own. I've curated my own feed at times to avoid hearing what some of these people think. And then you want to just flash it across the screen where I'm a captive audience. And I just, it seems like it's possibility to annoy is much, much higher than it's possibility to inform or entertain. It's Tracy time. Oh, Next good. question comes to us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes, I know you've seen the quote unquote stellar card next weekend, as it was discussed during the fight party. But have you seen the equally quote unquote stellar card aside from a better main event for the following week? I'm a diehard, so I'll watch them both regardless. But couldn't they have just combined the two to make one decent card and given us the other Saturday to party? Oh, right. There's a pandemic. So stay in and watch Netflix instead of fights is not a single fuck given at this point, whether it's a card the non-diehards will actually want to watch because of the ESPN deal. I'm in Canada where I'm not affected by ESPN, so all I can say is, for shame, UFC, for shame. 
Now, Ben, this is probably our only our only opportunity this week to talk about next week's event, which, as we have said before, is headlined by Holly Holm uh, versus Irene Aldana. You mean Holly Holmes? Holly Holmes, a.k.a. Holly Holmes. Week yeah. after that, uh, you got Marlon Moraes and Corey Sandhagen in a bantamweight main event, but only three fights officially on the card for that uh, October 11th event, which the, also is going to have Ben Rothwell versus Mar- Mar- Marcin Tibera and Sergey Spivak versus Tom uh, Aspinall. So it's pandemic MMA. These things are coming together on the fly. But I agree. Every time you start talking about the UFC spreading itself too thin. Every time, every time you start talking about uh, oversaturation, you look at these cards and it quickly becomes clear. If you did half as many cards or just like you omitted one or two per month, suddenly you have, you know, three or four fight cards that are entirely stronger and you could take some of these fights and mix and match them and, and make the entire product better. But it does sort of seem like at some point the UFC came to the realization that the thing that that it makes money off of is uh, quantity instead yeah. of quality, especially now that we are doing 42 events a year on ESPN Plus and other ESPN platforms. You got to get that broadcast money and the thing that that makes the UFC uh, both worthwhile and uh, a valuable commodity to these broadcasters is that they can fill so much time. They can fill so much time on, on ESPN Plus. They can sell advertising. Obviously, for ESPN, it's worth it just to have the content up there, a popular content stream that's available uh, almost exclusively on ESPN+. Plus. So that's a valuable thing for ESPN. So so everyone involved is making money off quantity rather than quality. And that just leads the the people who are in positions to, to make those decisions to uh, shape the sport in a way that is not really designed around the user experience i guess you could say like no one is is thinking of the fans seemingly at this point which is a weird look for the ufc if only because the company spent so many years talking about how it had the greatest fans in the world and it was very fan friendly and it seemed like fans really had some say and some pull in in how things went down now it seems like the total opposite that the ufc is just kind of uh stuffing its pockets and not really thinking much about what what people are going to watch or enjoy watching uh, or maybe it's thinking about the fans is you'll take what we give you and you'll like it and you'll shut up about it. And I, I know that what we usually do with these kinds of fight cards, especially this one coming up on Saturday, the the Holly Holmes, Irene Aldana headlined card, you look down at the the lineup underneath that and you don't see a whole lot that is convincing you to be in your seat as soon as f- the fights start on Saturday. And usually that's when we're told, Hey, watch out. It's always these kind of fight cards that deliver the excitement. You know, they gotta be the, they gotta be the most interesting by virtue of looking like the least interesting, which is spurious logic, I'd say. But, uh, even if that's the case, okay. Uh, we start with a pretty low bar, so maybe it's not that hard to meet our expectations for it. But the point that Tracy Dickinson makes is I don't see how you can argue with it because if you had, fewer fight cards and you have all this stuff that you're spreading out. The UFC has decided that it has to hit a certain number of events just to make that ESPN money. And it's going to do it, especially after it missed a few weeks due to the early days of the pandemic. So it's going to put on those events, whether it has the fighters for them or not. And that is one thing that it has basically told us is we, we have a date on the calendar. There will be fights on that date. Even if all the good and known fighters 
get sick or injured or can't make it or whatever, we're going to put somebody in some gloves and put them in that cage and there are going to be fights. But it does seem like it asks us, the fans and and the, the media and everybody to treat them all equally because they happen under the UFC brand. It would be like uh, Major League Baseball teams going out there and go, well, tonight, we couldn't we couldn't get the real Atlanta Braves. So we we got the guy we called up the the AAA team. We got them to show up, but they're in the Braves uniforms, so therefore it's the same thing. Tickets cost the same. It gets the same spot on TV, all that stuff. And sometimes uh, we're being asked to push that suspension of disbelief a little bit too far it seems. Yeah. Uh, well, that is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us while you're there. Go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on the days that we don't record the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. As I alluded to in the introduction this week, Israel Adesanya made it look somewhat effortless against Paulo Costa out there this weekend at UFC 253, retaining the UFC middleweight title via second round TKO in a bout where he essentially uh, defanged the mad dog in Paulo Costa here, a guy that we had seen come out guns blazing in almost all of his previous UFC wins, a guy who is a, a true powerhouse a guy who probably was never going to match Israel Adesanya for technique, but a guy who certainly had the physical ability to to match him for power and had the proverbial puncher's chance in this bout, maybe maybe more than the puncher's chance. Uh, and yet, simply by virtue, maybe, of being in the cage with Israel Adesanya, it appeared that Paulo Costa came into this fight with a, a different game plan, or at least uh, was was somewhat frozen by being out there against Israel Adesanya, fought the you know almost the the entirety of this uh almost nine minutes of action at distance where israel adesanya could tee off on him with those leg kicks and get into his his punching combinations use his length out there to his advantage uh and and really when it was all said and done i felt like we had an image of israel adesanya as a potential potentially like somewhat dominant champion for the ufc and a guy who is now 20 and 0 as a mixed martial artist which frankly it starts to put you in uh Habib Nurmagomedov territory in terms of like having an impressive undefeated record. Ben, what was your major takeaway here from this fight? What did you see from Israel Adesanya and Paulo Costa? And what what uh what are you still thinking about as we record this on Monday afternoon? Yeah, the point you made about Paulo Costa coming out there and looking like he had a different approach here. I think that's an interesting point to come out of it, especially because We've seen this happen now several times with people fighting Israel Adesanya, where we come out of it going, what was he thinking? What was that game plan? And if that happens once or twice, 
then sure, maybe somebody is miscalculating. But when it keeps happening to people over and over, when they turn into different versions of themselves or are forced to do things that seem like maybe a bad idea, then I think you have to start looking at the guy on the other side of the cage and go, is he doing that to them? Are they struggling to come up with answers for what he does? And I think a good contrast is like when Robert Whitaker fought Israel Adesanya and that, that kind of title, title unifier thing when Israel was the interim champ, Bobby Knuckles, the longtime uh, middleweight champ by that point, though, without a whole lot of action recently. And the thing he got criticized for was rushing in against Adesanya, like trying to really close that distance by sort of leaping in there to get close enough to hit him. And afterwards, I, you know, I asked him, I was at the press conference asking him about that style. And he was saying, well, his length is a problem. You got to get in there and you got to try to do something. You also don't want to end up standing out there at that range where he can punch or kick you and you can't quite reach him. And that's where he's really, really dangerous. And he is so good at just mixing up what he throws at you when you're in that range that it's really hard to tell what's coming next. And that's what I think gets people. It's not a overwhelming force of the strikes is being surprised by the strikes. And that was Whitaker's attempt to solve that problem was either be all the way out or all the way in. But the problem is getting all the way in is, is that presents some trouble on its own. And then you saw UL Romero take the exact opposite approach where I'm just not going to go in there. I'm going to try to make him come to me and I'll solve the problem that way. Like, let me just stand here completely motionless at times and see if he will come on and bring the fight to me and then I can counter him and I'll get my shots in that way. And Paulo Costa seemed more like a little bit of a middle ground. Definitely not the the hard-charging, straight-ahead bullfighter that he has been against most other opponents that he's faced. Also not standing there and doing absolutely nothing, but backing off a little bit, being not nearly as aggressive and still getting caught. And I think that what what you're seeing is different people trying to solve this problem with Israel Adesanya and not being able to do it. Yeah. Uh, Paulo Costa had been a bulldozer when we'd seen him in the past. Like he, he just got there and steamroll you basically with his, with his power come straight at you. Like clearly he came into this fight with the belief that you couldn't do that against Israel Adesanya. Maybe the proper belief. I don't know. Just as you said, judging by what we saw with Robert Whitaker a few fights ago. Uh, and he did seem like he, he wanted to split the difference between Robert Whitaker and, and Yoel Romero. However, the thing that uh, Paulo Costa did here certainly didn't work. And I wonder if if this is a fight for Paulo Costa, who's already talking about a rematch, rematch, already saying, you know, he had considered moving up maybe to go to 205, but he wants to stick around 185 to try to get back at, at Adesanya. It seems like potentially there's a bit of a feud brewing between both their teams, in fact. Uh, but I don't know, man, is this one that Paulo Costa is going to regret? Like, is, is Paulo Costa going to wake up today? Did he wake up today? Is he going to wake up later this week and think, you know what? Uh, maybe I should have done a little bit more of what brought me to the dance. Maybe I shouldn't have, have changed things uh, for the title fight when I had been very successful doing my own thing in, in all of these contender bouts. Maybe this was a mistake for me to, to go a different direction in, in the biggest fight of my career. Yeah, you're always, I'm sure, going to second guess yourself when you lose the title fight. There's plenty of things that you could look back on and think maybe I should have done this differently in camp or maybe I should have approached with a different game plan. Also, we don't completely know exactly how the game plan was going to work in his mind 
what he thought it was going to look like. And somebody asked me about this also in the mailbag, and it gave me the chance to quote the the A.J. Liebling line from uh, The Sweet Science, where he goes to Rocky Marciano's gym uh, short, like a couple of days after a successful title defense against Ezra Charles, I believe, and was asking Marciano's trainer, hey, were you surprised by the way Charles fought there? He fought like he seemed to play right into Rocky's hands and didn't do the stuff that it seemed like was his best chance to win. And the trainer responded to him, you know, he fought the way he fought because Rocky fought the way he fought. You can come in there with uh, feeling like you're totally ready and feeling like you have a really good plan. And then when you encounter the other guy's plan, the next thing you know, you're just trying to hang on and survive and you're not doing the stuff you told yourself you were going to do. And I think that that's one thing that we also see when people get in there with Israel Adesanya is that it's just maybe a little different than how you thought it was going to go. Yeah, he certainly uh, at this point poses a lot of problems for whoever gets in there to fight him. Speaking of which, here is your top 10 at middleweight at the moment. It doesn't seem like the UFC perhaps has has updated these rankings yet, but Robert Whitaker is still technically your number one contender. Of course, Israel Adesanya already beat him. Paulo Costa is your number two contender, and Israel Adesanya obviously just beat him. Jared Cannonier, who Adesanya said he wants to see next. Uh, singing and dancing Jack Hermanson, Yoel Romero, who Adesanya already beat. Then you got Darren Till, Derek Brunson, Kelvin Gastelum, uh, Chris Weidman, strangely enough, and Uriah Hall down there at number 10. So you look at this top 10, Ben. And obviously, it seems like like Adesanya wants Cannoneer if he if he uh, wins his next fight. But you look at this list, and my question is, where's the challenge going to come from? Who is the person out there at 185 pounds who is going to pose the biggest threat to Israel Adesanya? You've also got, obviously, the upstart in Kamzat Chimaev, who kind of bounces back and forth between these two weight class. He's saying he wants a piece of Adesanya as well. Uh which is probably smart for him since Adesanya is the biggest star there in those two divisions that he could, he could go after. But like, who's going to, who's going to, uh, who's going to be able to, to fade this guy, man. What's the, where's the biggest threat? Yeah, it's a good question, especially it seems like one of the things that we assume is in the aftermath of fights like this. Well, maybe it's going to take somebody who can take him to the ground and beat him up there. I don't know that you see that person when you look at the top 10 at middleweight right now. And I also think that it's tough to employ that kind of a strategy on a big, tall, rangy middleweight like Israel Adesanya. We haven't seen anybody lately, especially really commit to a wrestling heavy approach against Israel Adesanya. But if your plan is I'm going to take him down, I'm going to hold him there and I'm going to beat him up and over time, take something away from him or beat him up badly enough that he makes a mistake and I catch him in a submission or just beat him up for five rounds. Holding, Taking that guy down and holding him there for five rounds is going to be tough. That's going to yeah. wear you out, especially if you are not one of the bigger middleweights or maybe somebody even coming down from light heavyweight or something. You, you better be a big, strong fighter who can do that. And I don't know if I see that person sitting there right now. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it's, I, it's probably Chimaev, honestly, if it, if that's it, the guy who could fight him in that style or potentially fight him in that style. Of course, we don't want to get too high on our own supply here. Uh, Kamzat Chimaev, we've only seen him a few times. He's looked extremely good, but you don't. You also don't want to overinflate the the expectations and what you think the guy can do. If anybody was going to do it, it might have been Yoel Romero, and Yoel Romero, who who doesn't. Uh, he doesn't uh, consistently do a takedown heavy approach these days anyway, but then he just did kind of a a bizarre fight against 
Israel yeah. Adesanya when he finally did get his chance. So I don't, I don't know, man. And, and you got to think the, uh, the takedown defense on Israel Adesanya is probably not getting any worse day after day. So, uh, I agree with you. That is the style that I would like to see kind of come up against him, see what he could, if he could avoid it and, and continue to uncork his combinations and things like that. But at the same time, I think you're right. I don't know where that challenge is going to come from in yeah. the immediate. What do you make of Israel Adesanya's post-fight celebration? Since uh, that seems like it has become a topic of conversation. You mean where he, he briefly humped yeah, Paulo Costa? Yeah, that's the one. That's then the he one. ran over to the side of the cage and uh, Costa's coach was there. Uh, and he said, we're still coming for, for Volkanovsky, which is why I said, maybe there's a, a, a feud brewing here between these two teams, not just between these two guys. And Adesanya's response was, I'm coming all over you and did like a masturbation mm-hmm. thing. It was a masturbation like into the air so that it, then it would like rain down on him over the other side of the cage, which is vivid imagery yeah, wise. It, it is vivid. And, we, and we've also seen uh, Adesanya pretend to, to, to pee all over the cage, right? Wasn't it him who did that early in his UFC career yep. that he was marking his territory out there and turned you know, out to the, be accurate. Yeah. The Paula Costa thing seems no worse to me than anything else we've seen. Like we've seen all manner of this kind of stuff over the years, uh, in the, in the UFC and in MMA in general, Costa and, and Adesanya had a somewhat contentious lead up to this fight. Uh, I don't, it, it doesn't make me think one thing or another to be honest with you it's really neither here nor there for me i've seen i've seen all kinds of dudes get humped out there ben <laughs> i know you have you know, uh, want to know the truth the the thing that gets me about it i i don't love it as a celebration i'm not going to get super worked up about it or anything i'm not going to watch a vine of it <laughs> you you've already that's first of all old, old man dundas watching a vine what are they it's, called now they're Is doing tiktoks now they're okay. doing tiktoks well i'm um, definitely not going to watch a tiktok of it no, the Chinese government will have your information. The The thing about it to me is for a sport that is as at the drop of a hat, as homophobic as MMA can be, where we we react poorly and aggressively at the mere uh, possibility of any sort of like homoerotic undertones in the sport. Fighters will freak out about it. And they're all, you know, it took a long time just to convince them to slowly stop using like anti-gay slurs uh, when they're yelling at each other. Still, sometimes they'll do it. And yet there is this ongoing kind of undercurrent where we love to have as part of the imagery of this sport, this idea that I am so dominant in victory that I am basically having non-consensual sex with you, which that's weird, man. Like it's already weird for us to conflate sex and violence in this way with stuff like this, but it goes back to T Ortiz and his, I just fucked your ass shirt. And you're going, really? Did, is that what you wanted? Is that what you wanted out of this? Uh, I, is to, to have sex with me against my will? Like I get what you're trying to say that you were so dominant. You could have done anything. And that's the, the point you're trying to make. But also, why is like why would you go there in your mind of all the things? Like that's just it's a little bit weird. And we could we could just maybe do without it. Just why? Why do it? Yeah. It's it's uh it's a mystery. It's a is mystery. It? All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on, Ben, to round number two. Ben, I'm gonna I'll go ahead and do mine because it's Israel Adesanya facing. It's Israel okay. Adesanya adjacent, if nothing else. Uh, Dana White, not a huge fan of the Israel Adesanya dance entrances. Here's his quote 
uh, to TMZ Sport. He says, yeah, I don't love it. I don't love it. I battle with him every time we do it. You know, I, I keep it as minimal as possible. I like guys that just walk right into the octagon. They're serious. They're all business. But you know what? It works for Israel. It works for him. He's got the personality to pull it off. And obviously, the guy can actually really dance. Uh, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? How, how are you going to be the UFC president? You're going you're gonna to have budding superstar, middleweight champion Israel Adesanya on your hands, and you're going to be like, you know what? I would really rather if he did not differentiate himself in any way mm-hmm. from the crowd. I would like to see a sober and serious walk to the cage just like every single other person does. Are, are, you, are you fucking kidding me? Heaven forbid anyone does anything fun or, uh, or unique in this sport. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? I mean, I'm just saying. I said it uh, when we were talking about the WWE parallels during the watch party, but interchangeable fighters, man. That's what he really wants. I doesn't want people out here showing personality and entertaining us during the show we're all paying for. Just uh, interchangeable fighter A versus fighter B over and over again and collecting that licensing broadcast fees. Uh, he would, he my, would really rather you- if nobody did anything entertaining. My, are you fucking kidding me this week, Chad? Uh, so we knew our guy, John Jones, would be on the Twitters. You know he couldn't help himself, yeah. man. And we'll talk a little bit more about the the dynamic here when we go into round two, I'm sure, and talk about uh, Yanni Blackjack's big title win. But I'm looking at John Jones's Twitter, and it's a lot of the stuff you knew would be on there. Him making the point, hey, anybody can go out there and have one world-class performance one night, which I would argue, no, not anybody can, but fine. I get the point you're trying to make. But doing it over and over again for like a decade, that's the tough thing that nobody can do and that I have done basically. And saying, uh, here's another tweet. This one from just about an hour ago, Chad. Jan oh, and all of He's still tweeting? He's still oh, tweeting? The- it's Monday, John. Go for a walk. Chad, in the last hour, he's tweeted like five things. Uh, but this one says, Jan and all of Europe should be sending me fruit baskets. You're welcome. Uh, I guess I to this, it's I like have it to- wasn't his idea to leave. You know what I mean? Like it was his idea. I, I guess my are you fucking kidding me here is, man, I, I get what you're saying. And some of it, you're not entirely wrong. But you should let us say that to you. You should let the fans and the media be the ones to point out, you know what? He's only the champion because John Jones gave up the belt and left the division. And also, John Jones had a run at light heavyweight that it's going to be really hard to match. And one title victory for a vacant belt does not get you there all by itself. That is stuff that we will all say, man, if you give us a chance. That's but right. if you Let get out there in edgewise, if you get out there and you're the one who says it in a Twitter tirade that makes you look just a little bit jealous that it seems like, you know, the 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 girlfriend you dumped is now getting attention from other people and you don't like it. That makes it so that we then don't end up saying it because you're so busy saying it. You fucking kidding me? I'm Sometimes kidding less me. is more, man. <laughs> Often. All right. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back.
Chad? The man was not joking about his Polish power. Jan Blachowicz, 37-year-old light heavyweight, is your new UFC 205-pound champion. Kind of went in there and broke Dominic Reyes' whole shit. Twisted his nose all up, made him looking like a little Arlovsky out there, sat him down on the mat there late in the second round. 436 mark in round two earns the TKO finish and strapped that UFC gold around Yanni Blackjacks. Let him take it on home to Poland. How you feeling about this one? Well, we fully anticipated we would be here on Monday having this conversation about Dominic Reyes. Yes, we did. And we look a fool. Here we are. Yeah, one of us had to take a couple shots during the uh, during the watch party, if I remember correctly. Okay, uh, credit where it's due. You called this one exactly, and I think you were as surprised as anyone to learn that fact. Well, you asked me a fairly simple question. You were like, how does how does Jan Blachowicz beat Dominic Reyes? And I was like, I don't know, punches him in the face super hard and then follows up with strikes on the ground until the yes. ref stops it? You were Is basically like, he's going he, to he's gonna punch him in the head, Dominic Reyes will fall down, and then he'll punch him a couple times more, and it'll be over, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. I was going to say heel hook from the guard, but yeah. There you go. Yeah. Light heavyweight, man. Uh, People people hit hard. Other people fall down. That's You can do that at 205 pounds. I didn't expect 37-year-old Jan Blahovich to do it. I didn't think we'd be talking about him here on Monday. Uh, And it it opens up a lot of interesting questions for the light heavyweight division. Like we we talked on on Friday's Power Hour about how if Blahovich was the guy who emerged with the title, he might have a hard time escaping the shadow of John Jones because we're all going to look at this division, and we're going to think if, if John Jones cared to make the weight, he's the best 205-pound fighter in the world on any on any day that he wants to be there. Uh, obviously, Jan Blahovich, like took a more upfront approach than I expected after winning the title, kind of getting on the mic and saying, where's John Jones? Let's do this thing. Come come down here and, and fight with me. And maybe that's you know what has, among other things, spurred John Jones to, to do these numerous tweets about how – he could go back and get his get his belt back real quick, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you look at the division, you're not totally sure what the future of Jan Blahovich is. You, you don't necessarily think he shapes up as a dominant longtime champion at 205 pounds. At the same time, though, man, he, as you said, pretty much wrecked Dominic Reyes over the course of these two rounds. And that, that makes me have questions more than anything else, man. Like, w- w- this was not the Dominic Reyes that we saw come out there and go straight at John Jones for 25 minutes in their fight. This right. we commented on it during the the fight party that this looked for the beginning of this fight it looked like two guys who who understood that they the gravity of the situation, right? Like they didn't want to fuck this up. They did not want to lose. And maybe that's maybe Dominic Reyes in, in the same way Paulo Costa was in the main event was just a little bit too tentative here, but all all credit to the man Yanni Blackjacks and the suicide rope for going in there getting that gold and taking it back to a hero's welcome at the airport in Poland. Yeah. Well, and one thing you can see is when you let that guy start putting combinations together and start putting some strikes together, you let him get going and he can give you some problems. And that is one thing that Dominic Reyes just did not come out there and get right in his face like he did with John Jones, which made me wonder if with John Jones, maybe he was scary enough and Dominic Reyes was adamant enough about not getting intimidated by that sort of aura of greatness that John Jones brings into fight, not letting him beat you psychologically before the fight and to go out there right away and to show them that, that you're not intimidated and that you're going to come right after him. And it did seem a little bit to me like against Blahovich that Reyes was already regarding the belt as his and what he had to do was just not fuck it up. 
And if you go in there against a guy like this with that attitude, and then he is able to start putting some stuff together, then the next thing you know, you you have a hard time getting back in the fight. It especially seemed like he, some of the stuff, not just uh, you know him landing that left hook that surprised Dominic Reyes, but he's landing that kick to the body, as you noted, a, a bruise to the latissimus dorsi area. Uh, come up very prominently, very, very long for Dominic Reyes. So maybe you let that guy start chipping away at you and pretty quickly you're not feeling like you're 100% anymore and then you're in some trouble. So I, I do kind of agree with you, though, that at least for now, doesn't it feel like, hey, if you want to take that belt around to nightclubs in Poland and, and, and impress people, do it. Do it now. Yeah, like do it. If you're going you know, to have a cup of coffee with the belt, make sure you have that cup of coffee right now. Don't wait and be like, oh, I'll still be champ this time next year. So I got plenty of time to do whatever I want to do with the title. No, have your fun with it now, because I'm sure there's a whole lot of dudes in the light heavyweight division. Like for one, you know, Tiago Santos, who was the last guy to beat Jan Blachowicz, who are looking at the state of 205 pounds right now and feeling like beating the champ has never been a more realistic goal for for the last 10 years, basically, than it is right now. I mean, it's arresting to just look at the UFC light heavyweight championship uh, title history and you see like Frank Shamrock, Tito Ortiz, Randy Couture, Vitor Belfort, Chuck Liddell, Rampage Jackson, Forrest Griffin, uh, Rashad Evans, uh, Lyoto Machida, uh, Shogun Hua, John Jones, Daniel Cormier, Jan Blakovic. Like it's it's he's the first name he's the first name that shows up in that entire title history where you're like oh really but also okay we have the benefit of hindsight on all those other guys and they some of them seem like a little bit bigger deal now than they were at the time true here's my question to you is at 37 years old suddenly going to be you know daniel cormier john jones but you know what? They can't they can't ever take it away from him. He's on that list now yep. forever. So more power to him. It's a feel-good story. He seems like a good dude. My question to you is when you look around at light heavyweight right now, say, just for the sake of argument, John Jones isn't coming back anytime soon. Daniel Cormier isn't coming back. It's just who we got. That's all you got to choose from. Is there is there anyone on the list of available realistic potential future contenders at light heavyweight who Lahovich could be that would convince you, okay, this wasn't just some one night. Everything came together for you after the champ left town. You really are, or or at least were for this time, the best light heavyweight in the world. Can he do that against who we've got to choose from right now? Or would it take the kind of longevity in the division that maybe, as you said, is less realistic for a 37 year old fighter. You know what? I don't, I don't want to make too much mock of Jan Blahovich. We think that he's a, a good guy and obviously a talented fighter. He's eight and one uh, since 2017. Like that's, that's nothing to sneeze at in this division. Whereas it, as I said earlier, like people hit hard and you can basically get stopped at any time. Uh, you do at this point have a, a UFC light heavyweight champion who has losses in the octagon to Jimmy, Jimmy Manuel, Corey Anderson, Lusty Gusty and Patrick Cummins among others. So uh, that that in and of itself makes you feel like maybe he should be has spending as much time with the belt right now as, as he wants to. Get a lot of um, pictures. Put a lot of pictures we, up on Instagram. We assume that you are eventually going to get the Tiago Santos Glover to share a fight done and over with. That's been COVID scheduled cup. several. Yeah. The COVID cup has been scheduled several several times now. Uh, 
I don't think I'm telling too many tales outside of school if I say we kind of expect Tiago Santos to win that. If he, you know, he's kind of a question mark, I guess, at this point, because he's going to come in off the off the knee surgery. Yeah, uh, he's we don't know exactly what kind of product we're going to get from him. But but like if he is as terrifying as he was pre John Jones fight, he's probably the way to bet in the Glover to fight again. I mean, we expected Reyes here. And look, at, look at what expecting got us, Chad. True, and, and not to take anything away from another super crafty veteran in Glover Tashira, who obviously has made the case several times in recent memory that he is still dangerous. But like, uh, if Jan Blahovich, to answer your original question, were to beat Tiago Santos in a rematch, at that point, I think you would have to be pretty impressed. I think you'd have to say, "Wow, like this guy's having a serious late career renaissance." Not just a late career renaissance, but like he. Maybe he is the best light heavyweight that we have right now available in this division. So that's going to be a big one for the new champ, I think, if, in, if indeed it comes to fruition. Yeah. And then everybody was going to continue to talk about why he looks like if Josh Barnett and Stipe Miocic had a baby. That's who right. Who's also as, like, almost as old as them. He's the little war master. Uh, well, one, one minute here, Ben. What, what, what do we make now of Dominic Reyes, a guy who, like, uh, a little bit less than one year ago was 12 and 0 that knocked out Chris Weidman in that uh, fight that they had at the, uh, in Boston at the, at the, at the arena down there in Boston, a minute and 43 seconds, like pretty impressive performance. Uh, and now is on the heels of back-to-back losses. I know a lot of people thought he should have got the nod against John Jones at UFC 247, but uh, what do we think of Dominic Reyes? And now that he got his whole shit broke, by Jan Blahovich, like what's the? I wonder what the the plan for the return is. Like he's gonna, I think he's gonna face some psychological hurdles here that he probably hasn't faced at least in his MMA career up to this point. Yeah, but he is still young enough and early enough on in his MMA career that this might not be the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. You know, because uh, I don't see this as a sign that Dominic Reyes sucks and we got way ahead of ourselves thinking he was good. You see the guy who fought John Jones in that fight, and you have to conclude that dude has talent. That dude has some skill and that he can go some places with this and just has not been in the sport for that long. does not have a ton of experience. And so for him being able to do that then was even more impressive. He goes out here and maybe makes some strategic errors against Jan Blahovich and pays for it. It'll kind of depend, I think, what he takes from it. If he learns some lessons from it and sees, here's some things I did that I need to learn to never do again. Or if he tells himself that was just a fluke and a lucky punch and I'll beat that guy nine times out of 10 and I'm not worried about it. That's, that's what we're in the malleable period after a loss like this. We're still waiting to see how he takes it and what he comes out of it because I'm not going to write the guy off after that fight and say, you know what, that's as close as a, to a UFC title as he'll ever again. I, I would not be surprised to see him right back up in that conversation pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll, I will say this. I've, I feel like I can confidently say that it's it's more fun this week that we unexpectedly find ourselves in the Yanni Blackjacks era. Uh, once it's all said and done, you might you might be able to say Dominic Reyes had the better career. Maybe he becomes a future champion. But uh, I kind of I like I don't know. I think it's it's fun for us to be here this week talking about what is the future of this crazy division now that you've got Jan Blahovich as your champion rather than like if we were sitting here being like, OK, you have very hard-nosed and, and tough-to-beat champion Dominic Reyes filling the shoes of John Jones. It just seems like 
maybe I will take any manner of fun right now, both in life and in this sport. But uh, I'm happy to have Jan Blahovich here. Yeah. Let's enjoy it while it lasts. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Round number three. Ben, not to get us off on an awkward foot here, but as we record this third round of the Co-Main Event Podcast episode 421, I still have not watched Diego Sanchez fight Jake Matthews, and I don't think I'm going to. Okay. I put out the call on Twitter on Saturday night. I was like, uh, I just put my kids to bed. Do I do I need to circle back and watch Diego Sanchez versus Jake Matthews? Because I had seen what was happening. I, could, I had seen the responses on Twitter, and uh, it wasn't like Diego Sanchez is back. Yes, that's the uh, that was the uh, that was the 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 feeling I was getting just from from seeing everybody's responses on Twitter. So I text, I tweeted out like, "Do I need to watch this? Is this something that I need to see?" Here are the responses just right off the top. Okay, you want to feel existential despair? Question mark. Next reply, no. Next reply, <laughs> okay. meh. Next reply, no. Next reply, do you enjoy gazing into the void? <laughs> Next reply, Bugs Bunny gif saying no. <laughs> I know exactly Next the reply, gif. Next yeah. reply, it was a nightmare. So, okay, uh, I see what they're doing there. Yeah. And I can, I can just keep scrolling here. I'm still scrolling. Turns out no, says one person. Uh, no, it was sad on both parts, says another one. Absolutely not, is another reply. Then you got the Danny DeVito gif. Uh, the nope gif mm-hmm. uh don't do it to yourself this year has been difficult enough uh it goes it goes on and on yeah. and so here we are on monday i've not watched jake matthews uh defeat diego sanchez via unanimous decision during their welterweight preliminary here at this event and i don't know that i care to yeah and maybe it's because i've been watching diego sanchez for 20 years but uh there we are i will say there's nothing new to learn here that you didn't already know or at least suspect. And the trajectory that it has seemed like Diego Sanchez has been on for a little while is in full effect here. Uh, the thing to me that seemed a little bit most alarming is that he didn't look good physically just standing there. Looked right. like he was carrying a little bit of extra weight around the the tummy area, which, hey, I understand you get in your late 30s and that can happen to a fella. Trust me, I get it. But it also made me think if Diego Sanchez shows up not in absolutely peak physical condition, like if his conditioning is not great, then how many other weapons does he have left at this point? Because that seems to be in some of the fights where he has surprised us recently and pulled out a win, a lot of it has been his ability to just keep going. And to, to set a high pace and to keep it and use some of that wrestling. And if you show up and you're not in great shape and your, your cardio isn't there and, you know, just because you have a little bit of tummy fat doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. But sometimes it does mean that it's the case that you weren't able to or didn't train quite as hard in that sense that he's not at the point now where he can afford to not have that on his side because he uh, the other physical tools have degraded with with time and 
frankly, with a lot of the damage that he's taken in there. It was the one thing that we could count on, right? right. Was that Diego Sanchez would come in with an amazing shape and would they never say die attitude. So if one of those two things has been subtracted from the equation, I think you got trouble, man. I think you got trouble and everybody is talking about it. So we might as well address the Josh Fabia issue right off the top. Uh, in the pre-fight press conference, Diego Sanchez is out here talking about how like he he'd fully planned on, on fighting out his entire four fight contract here with the UFC. He said he wanted to fight Conor McGregor, his final fight, et cetera, et cetera. But he also said he, he was looking forward to being done because he wants to go start the center of self-awareness with Josh Fabia, that those guys will be doing some manner of non-martial arts instruction, life coaching, team building, whatever it is uh, for the general public or, or others. I don't know. I can't sit here and tell you I have a, a, a great handle on what the Center for Self-Awareness is going to do. But uh, I guess in terms of the MMA world, the only thing that we can say is that you have two disastrous performances here during the Josh Fabia era. And Diego Sanchez entrusting his career to people that maybe shouldn't be entrusted with it is not necessarily a new thing. He's done it before during during his career. So you know, I, it's if you're if you're going to be if you're going to be in questionable shape, and the UFC is going to keep handing you to twenty six year old murderers, and you're going to keep getting bludgeoned by them, I don't feel great about it. If I know that that Josh Fabia is the one who's who's running your fight camps, I'm just I just got to say it. Yeah. And uh, Daniel Cormier made a good point. I saw via Twitter uh, his show with Ariel Hawani where he was saying this guy is supposed to be the guru of self-awareness and he did not have enough awareness to know that you shouldn't try to run up on Matt Sarah while he's eating breakfast. Like maybe that's like maybe Matt Sarah is the exact wrong guy and mealtime is the exact wrong time uh, to try to have that conversation. And I got to admit, that's kind of a good point, but self-awareness does not seem to be something that that guy is really excelling at. And you're right that Diego Sanchez seems kind of uniquely vulnerable and susceptible to that exact type of sort of snake oil salesman. He's going to love that kind of thing. And then just telling me that you and Stefan Bonner built a sweat lodge and had an experience and he's in there too, doesn't necessarily make me believe that don't worry, there's a steadier hand on the till. The thing that really worries you about Diego Sanchez is it seems like, as much as he can say that he's looking forward to being done, but I'm just not sure I believe it yet. I think he's been doing this for so long that I think him finding an exit that he feels good about and that will stick with him is going to be a difficult process. Should he fight on even no. like, or sh- should we be done at this point? Should the UFC be done knowing full well that Diego Sanchez might go somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, You'd like to think that the UFC would at least try to have a conversation with him about it. At least see if he could be made to listen to reason. And maybe he can and maybe he can't. And maybe it's a thing where the UFC does have to cut him and just let – if he's going to go bare knuckle box or whatever it is he might think about doing, then maybe you just have to let that be. But I don't know. What can you really do with him at this point? Who can you put him up against where it's not going to be another one of these – Sad nights for Diego Sanchez. Yeah, you got to stop feeding him to uh, to dudes in their mid twenties. You got to stop giving him to Jake Goddamn Matthews. I know that much, and it can't it it can't be McGregor. No, it, cannot. it can't be McGregor. 
So uh, I don't know, man. He, he's got to go on a Legends tour. BJ Penn around? What, can we get- uh, Don't you do this. <laughs> don't do that. Is that too sad for you? Is you, that too sad of an idea? You're just- you're going to speak that into existence and that's going to be on you. It's going to be on your conscience. All right. Well, let's do uh, just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I, I mentioned earlier on the talk about Israel Asanya's choice of post-fight celebration against Paulo Costa. Saw some people coming out strongly condemning it. Other people super into it. Other people like me don't love it, but aren't going to get too mad about it. I guess I'm just saying this week, the one guy who can't make videos about how mad he is about it is Paulo Costa. And that is already what he has done because Paulo Costa spent literally months, Chad, coming up with uh, Israel Adesanya photoshops, tr- various attempts to emasculate and work this exact same kind of weird homoerotic discourse against Israel Adesanya, talked all kinds of shit posted all kinds of shit on social media all as part of the pre-fight barrage. I'm just saying other people can be like, wish he hadn't have done that. Don't think that's a cool thing that we should be doing out there in professional MMA fights. The one guy who can't say it is Paulo Costa. I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. Uh, we talked about on the fight party, Ben, this, this, uh, turn of events where Conor McGregor has put his Instagram DMs in these streets mm-hmm. with Dana yep. White. That he and Dana White DMing each other uh, in a way that that warmed my heart just to know that these two guys communicate exactly the way I'd always imagined. That I knew it would be social media DMs. I knew Dana White would constantly be calling Conor McGregor kid. I knew that uh, Conor McGregor would constantly be pestering Dana White about getting fights. It's just made me realize that the that the secret world behind this behind the the screen behind the scenes is exactly what i imagined it to be and that that really that made me feel good but one person that didn't feel great about it dana white here he is quote from uh probably the, this post fight ufc 53 press conference here at simon head's story on mma junkie here's dana white's quote it's just something you don't do he said it's one of the dirtiest things you can do now I'm not going to disagree with that. I think it is something you don't do to put it someone else's private business in the streets. But one of the dirtiest things you could do? I mean, if we just take the things that we know Conor McGregor has done and the things that we know Dana White has done, this is one of the least dirty yeah. on that list. Pretty minor. I'm just saying. I'm just saying, this seems like a minor transgression to me. Also, Conor McGregor's point in response to that was that he felt like Dana White had been lying on him about what fights he was willing to accept and what fights he wasn't, and that that was a response basically to show the receipts on that. And it's not like he's the first person who would accuse Dana White of lying about or misrepresenting private negotiations. And if that's not a dirty thing to do, then why is providing exact textual proof such a dirty thing to do? I'm just saying. He said it all when you said it, my friend. In any case, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Remember, all week long, we'll be over at the Patreon page doing the live chat, doing the movie club, doing the uh, power hour. One week from today, we'll be, be, we will be back for the proper, another episode of this show. Will we spend an entire show 
breaking down such fights as Holly Holmes versus Irene Aldana, Jermaine Durandamy versus Juliana Pena, and Jorgen DeCastro versus Carlos Felipe? Will we spend that show looking ahead to uh, Marlon Moraes versus Corey Sandhagen, Sergey Spivak versus Tom Aspinall, Yusuf Zalal versus Sung Woo Choi? I guess you're going to have to tune in to find out. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Okay, hear me out. Maybe what I hear you saying is that next week is the perfect week to spend the show talking about great figures in jazz music history. There's never going to be a better time. I've been saying we should go in this new direction for, for years now. This is the time, Chad. Let's do it. Yes, yes. Charles Mingus, Miles Davis, John Coltrane. Let's do it. Dave Brubecker. There's, there's just never going to be this kind of opening ever again until like six weeks from now. Finally, we spring the trap mm-hmm. on our plans to make this a jazz discussion podcast. Yeah. I dig it, Daddy-O. Let's do it. See, I'm, I'm going to be in it for the hats, the slang, and the edibles. Yeah. There we go. Let's get it done. I'm going to start smoking cigarettes just for this. <laughs> <laughs>